0: Welcome to Enhanced Therapy Podcast. My name is Derek Davda and today we're going for an exciting trip all the way to Berlin to speak with the co-founder of the Mind Foundation, Dr. Andrea junga berle Hi, Andrea.
1: Hi there.
0: How's your morning going? Yeah, it's my afternoon.
1: I just got back from another appointment in the city of Berlin. so. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad to be arriving here with you for this conversation.
0: I know you guys are extremely busy. I know your conference is coming up very soon. I, I want to hear all about it. Surely. As a brief introduction, Andrea is a medical doctor. She's the co-founder of the Mind Foundation, which is a European psychedelic assisted psychotherapy think tank, one of the largest European psychedelic psychotherapy organizations based in Berlin. She's the medical director of Ovid clinics. She's the practitioner of augmented therapy, yoga teacher, human being, and I'm sure many other things. So when we spoke a couple of weeks ago, we decided to call this podcast, There is No Casual MDMA Experience. So we are taking a, a cautionary angle on MDMA-assisted therapy, uh, which I think is much needed amidst this this exuberance that is surrounding MDMA-assisted psychotherapy these days. Most listeners probably know that MDMA-assisted therapy will likely be available as a mainstream treatment within two or three years or so. The research results are spectacular so far. FDA uh, has granted MDMA-assisted therapy a breakthrough status, which is a very rare designation uh, that essentially it means that MDMA-assisted therapy shows more promise for treatment of trauma, of PTSD specifically, uh, than any other available therapies to date. So there's a lot of excitement around MDMA-assisted therapy. The, the, it's growing all over the world. Lots and lots is happening. So I thought i travel to Berlin to see uh, what our hardcore, critical, scientifically-minded, <laughs> philosophically sophisticated European friends have to say about MDMA-assisted therapy. So this is what we're going to talk about today. And uh, But before we do that, Andrea, I wonder, you have this conference coming up very soon. Do you want to tell us about this? It's a huge psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy conference.
1: Yes, surely. And uh, the conference you just mentioned is called Inside 2021. It's the second edition of a biannual conference we're holding here in Berlin, at Langenbeck wilcherhaus which is part of Charity Hospital. And we're going to have, uh, yeah, three and a half days of very interesting talks, panels, uh, workshops.
0: What are the dates?
1: It is starting on the 9th of September and ends on the 12th. So 9th to 12th of September here in Berlin. Uh, We're sold out on site due to Corona. uh, This happened a bit quicker than anticipated because we had to limit the number of attendees here. But luckily we already planned it the whole way as a hybrid conference. So people who want to meet uh, us, especially who want to join the conference from uh, further abroad, from Canada, for example, or from the United States, uh, I, I'm still very welcome to purchase uh, an, an online ticket for the live streaming that we do via AirMeet, and it's going to be a higher quality uh, live streaming of all the events.
0: What are some of the highlights of the conference, as far as you can tell?
1: Um, we're very lucky to have a lot of very great great speakers around, both from, um, let's say, the basic science around psychedelics, like Franz Vollenweider, who's been Yeah, uh, on this topic for over 20 years now in Switzerland, but also people um, that are well known to most uh, who are interested in MDMA, like Rick Doblin and Amy uh, Emerson from MAPS. Um, Mm -hmm. There's going to be several speakers from Johns Hopkins University, like Matt Johnson and Gül Dölen, uh, but also people from from Germany, from our new project, so Gerd Gründer, who is the PI of our own study or his study that we are part of here in Berlin and Mannheim is going to be there. And also... uh, uh, Broad, yeah, broad spectrum of younger scientists, people who have new ideas, new angles. There will be a focus also on ethics and philosophy. We're going to have an implementation track where, um, amongst others, where well, it's going to be interesting because at this table, at the panel for the implementation track, we're going to have um Somebody from a is speaking, somebody from Ysona is going to be there. Uh, Amy Emerson from MAPS is going to talk. So it's going to be the, the whole spectrum of opportunities or, or ways on how psychedelic therapies and psychedelic medicines could be implemented in the future. And um, I'm really looking forward. And I hope this is going to be yeah, a forum for intensive discussions, positive and also controversial discourse, because I think this is what we need in this scene. A lot of people really... Mm-hmm. Yeah, getting their heads down and and talking about what is important and where do we want to go with all this. This has happened. That is happening. That's now.
0: great. So exciting. So that's a big, big, big development for you guys to have uh, to have this conference post COVID. And of course, it's Berlin. So I heard that you are putting on some amazing art programming. Is that true?
1: That's true. We have several. Um, and also, not only musical artists, but also uh, performances and people who uh, sh- show that their works uh, from a group called EDGE, which is neuroscientists at the university here in Berlin that are also artists, and they're merging neuroscience and art, which is really wow. fascinating. We had an exhibition from wow. their works here at our offices last year, and it was <sighs> really uh, amazing, um, yeah, nuances that suddenly became visible. And I'm really looking forward to having them around also at the conference this year for the evening mm-hmm. programs. And we're going to have a party of, of course, an outdoor oh, okay. one because it's, it's COVID still, but we're taking all the necessary precautions to have a safe and happy weekend for huh. everybody attending.
0: Might not be very much sleep that weekend. huh?
1: Conferences never are, to be honest.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I can't, I can't imagine neuroscientists, neuroscience art. At a psychedelic conference. Can you imagine that? Well, I, I can.
1: I can. <laughs> you can. Oh, <laughs> I,
0: oh my gosh. I was actually thinking about being there, you know, and uh, unfortunately, you know, life is busy and I couldn't come, but uh, uh, hopefully next time. That's so great. And, you know, your institute has, uh, your foundation uh, has so much more going on. Maybe we can talk about this. Uh, a little bit more at the end you you guys uh, have very strong programming drug science program augmented psychotherapy training you have these uh, uh, uh reportedly amazing experiential groups called beyond experience uh, where you learn integration through uh, altered states of consciousness and all of that so you, you guys are doing amazing work okay so uh, let, let's see why is there no casual mdma experience
1: well, first, before we dive into that, I when you introduced me and kind of created this this picture about science, philosophy and being like super critical, like, wow, he, he comes all the way to Germany and he ends up talking to me. So <laughs> uh, I always try to avoid um, the impression of being a, a know-it-all. I have got some experiences in the field. I have, of course, my opinions on things, Mm -hmm. but I always want to make clear that this is just one point of view in things. And I would not, I I would never, claim to be the owner of truth and light in those things. I think in those very delicate and difficult topics, it's always good to hear different opinions and then form your own after having heard different points of view and perhaps this point of view I can contribute is just one that can help people navigate this field for themselves.
0: I can uh, take your and of course. (laughs) Yes, it's all just a perspective. Just a perspective.
1: So let us come back to This notion of why I believe that there is no casual MDMA experience, and this goes beyond just psychedelic psychotherapy with MDMA. I also think also in recreational use, in fact, there are, let's say, almost no casual MDMA experience Mm -hmm. simply because of... Firstly, the uh, the ways the substance works on the brain, the neurotransmitters that are being released, the 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 state of emotional openness and um, attachment, but also because um, especially in therapy, uh, it is known and loved by therapists in the field for its capability to create uh, an intense relationship of trust between the patient and the therapist very quickly. Mm, mm-hmm. But uh, th- this can also be somehow yeah difficult because if this is not an authentic closeness, not an authentic emotional opening that happens, but one that is facilitated merely by brain chemistry being altered, this can turn nasty for all sides, possibly.
0: This is a very good question. Is MDMA experience authentic? The question I guess would be does it take does it expand your consciousness or does it alter your consciousness to a state that you cannot recreate outside of the MDMA experience?
1: I find it difficult to distinguish between those two concepts because I think it's a continuum. It's something it's both kind of true and not true. And uh, what what MDMA definitely is not, is a truth serum. It's not something that brings out the one truth in a person. I think it can be under the right circumstances a very supportive experience.
0: It's not revelatory in that way. It's not a revelation into some grand truth.
1: Well, it can be, but there is no guarantee and this is... And I think sometimes uh, people who are over-enthusiastic, especially people who get in touch with these substances for the first time, don't see yet that it's complicated. That the things you perceive as being so true, so good, so wonderful, so real about yourself might actually not be, but they also can be. And they also learning can. To, Yeah, yeah. yeah to learning to differentiate between nice. those through... Points in 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 in, in the, in the coordinate system is really difficult, and I think uh, we don't talk about this enough. There's this very famous quote of "Don't marry two weeks after MDMA." Well, don't, don't decide anything big two weeks after MDMA. You know, it's like like it needs this phase of cooling down to shrink things back into a real life form. It doesn't mean that the emotions you had, the revelations you had, are unreal or not true, but they might be blown out of proportion and it might take some time for things to kind of sediment down and find their position in your life.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I like how you keep the ambiguity alive here, no simple answers to those kind of bipolar questions. So there is like a a, sort of like an expansion and an opening of, of consciousness, obviously that happens with all psychedelics and mdma as well we talked a lot we talk a lot about connections that happen with people and some of those connections might become a little bit more indiscriminate than uh, outside of mdma experience that are some of the mechanisms that protect us from connecting to people that are not necessarily good for us are, are are put to sleep during an mdma experience and then we might kind of regret later on that we've made it those connections would you go with that logic
1: well that's part of it yes I think with MDMA people are sometimes like especially in recreational use oh it's just MDMA I can have it at the party and even if I don't know people well it's not a big deal it's just MDMA yeah but you're going to end up being emotionally close for this time to whoever is there right and this is something we should be aware of because um, emotional openness always comes with vulnerability.
0: Mm-hmm. So it's the concept of indiscriminate attachment that you will attach to whoever is there.
1: It's a bit like the baby duckling uh, get, getting out of his egg and there's the, the ornithologist, not not his duck mum, and he's going to f- run after this guy thinking he's his mom. Yes, this is, this is the kind of thing that could easily happen in this MDMA space. This is also what happened with some therapists. You know, they are a bit like the ornithologist with the the duckling mm-hmm. coming out of the egg. And if you're not careful mm-hmm. to make it clear to this hetling that you are in fact not his mother, but it's it's a different concept. You You, you happen to be there and yes, you're taking care and so on. I think the responsibility when taking care of, clients, of patients under the influence of MDMA is perhaps even bigger than with serotonergic psychedelics, to be honest.
0: We should probably mention that right now we're talking about two areas that are somewhat different. There is MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, which is a you know, a lot of people are working on making this safe and and, 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 a gr- and effective experience for people. And then there's recreational use of MDMA.
1: And there's even more, there's self-explorative use, which goes beyond recreational.
0: Re- so yes. People who are yes.
1: exploring their own inner landscape, trying to learn, to heal and to develop, which I would not call recreational, but that's self-explorative use at, at the end of the day.
0: Maybe we should mention a little bit about the basic hypothesis underlying how MDMA-assisted therapy works. There's this fear reduction model which essentially applies predominantly to the treatment of PTSD that, you know, the traumatic memories have a lot of fear attached to it, so within the exposure paradigm. It's difficult to do to do that kind of work because it's it's very fear-inducing. MDMA makes uh, makes those memories for the time being less fearful. You you can bring them, you can integrate them, and then you know the memories stay the way they were, but the the emotional load that was attached to those memories is 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 really It is much less. So therefore. Uh, the trauma is, is healed, kind of like that's the fear reduction hypothesis in a very short version. And then there is the reopening of the critical period for social bonding hypothesis, which is essentially the gould Dolans work, where uh, the hypothesis here is that we become sort of like adolescents, we become children, we become open to forming new connections the way children and adolescents open to forming new connections.
1: The only thing I would want to comment is that I don't think that these two hypotheses are excluding each other I think there is space for both concepts as it is so often there's not one model of explaining what happens in those complex fields but there are se- several aspects being brought together and also if you look at the uh the neurotransmitters that are the most affected when it comes to mdma so talking about on the one side serotonin on the other side oxytocin it's it's, it's it works nicely also when we bring together those two hypotheses that you just mentioned.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. We were talking about forming these indiscriminate attachments. Uh, so in psychotherapy, how is that relevant in psychotherapy? What should people know in psychotherapy? Or what should people know outside of psychotherapy when they... Use MDMA. Well, the,
1: f- the first thing is another disclaimer. Uh, I am a medical doctor by training. I'm an anesthesiologist, an emergency doctor with a lot of knowledge around psychotherapy, but I'm not a certified psychotherapist. So, whenever I talk about psychotherapy, it's my perspective of it. Yeah. And I, again, there will be people out there who will know a lot more than I do. I'm more of a generalist, but this is also a way of bringing perspectives together. The first question is, in my opinion, why? people chose each mode of use of MDMA so why does somebody decide to go for MDMA psychotherapy be it in the official framework of the studies that are going on that maps is mainly conducting currently around the world or underground psychotherapy where MDMA is also present in many countries around the world and on the other hand why do people choose for self exploratory or relationship building or recreational use of MDMA because another uh, field where MDMA is used a lot I think is in, in couples seeking reconnection or friendship groups seeking reconnection, really emphasizing this social bonding aspect of the substance. And if we look first at why people go into therapy, it's because they are in a situation emotionally in their life that they are unable to get out themselves it is so unbearably difficult that they need help and in that case they go the extra mile to get help either within the framework of a clinical study which is not that easy to get in usually or they take the risk of going underground and having um, as in many cases with psychedelic assisted psychotherapy uh, therapy in an not too clear setting with a the substance. They don't really usually know where it came from, what the, what the strength is, is it really what they were looking for? Mainly, it's, it's, it's very, also, again, the harm reduction. You, you see but very often today, yes, what people get in those sessions is MDMA, but there have been times in the past 20 years where that wasn't always the case. Um, and the next thing is, wait, but so, so this is getting out of a very difficult situation. The other side, this more recreational or social use or self exploratory use of MDMA is in order to make something better. So not to get out of the worst, but to make something better. To be more connected with yourself, with your your spouse, with your Mm friends, to work through something emotional, just to enjoy yourself, to appreciate art, music, culture more. Those are all... reasons why people use this substance. And I think uh, also the caveats, the careful points come from as different, even though they're similar, they come with different connotations also depending on which context we're talking. So if somebody goes to a therapist, especially somebody who's got severe trauma history, who's got post-traumatic stress disorder, they need a therapist they can fully trust in. Usually, in this kind of therapy, it takes a lot of time, hours and hours and hours of, uh, of of interaction between the therapist and the patient to establish this kind of connection that makes it possible to then look at more difficult topics where there is avoidance of traumatic memories, where people avoid getting triggered by their trauma, and so on and so on. And only after establishing a really solid emotional bond with a therapist it becomes possible to s- slowly unscrew the lid of this jar of difficult things that they carry around with them all the time mm. with mdma this process can be speeded up a lot but in mm. this case with speed comes massive responsibility because and this is also true for any kind of what i would call disruptive therapy where you open up things where you stir up things mm you should be able to cope as a therapist with what you are helping the patient conjure up from inside himself. So if you help a patient to open his deepest wounds, his deepest sorrows, his deepest fears, you should be able to hold that as a person, as a therapist, and you should be able to contain your own things within you because in this situation, people pick up on everything. People on MDMA, as on psychedelics, will pick up on all that's in the room. It's not just one person tripping, it's always the whole system tripping.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's why it's so important, A, for the patient mm. to choose a therapist he can really deeply trust. Mm-hmm. And somebody who could use this kind of closeness for whatever, or not be able to hold it because it's like, then it's like crashing at high speed. You know, you, mm-hmm. you, you rev up the, the therapeutic engine to go two right. miles per hour, and then you can't hold it. This is going right. to lead to even further difficulties. Right, And also I think as in all modes of psychedelic therapy, it is hugely important that the therapist has a solid sense of where his own boundaries are and what his also his capabilities are. I once heard a great quote from, from somebody, um, Eduardo Schoenberg was living in Brazil. I don't know if it was originally his idea, but he told me about his concept of ego transference. So if in a psychedelic therapy session or also an MDMA therapy session, the patient's ego dissolves, the therapist's ego inflates at the same rate it's 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 really something very important in my opinion
0: so there is first of all the you know therapist basic ability to contain this opening this burst of experiences that are very difficult when you talk about trauma therapy Mm -hmm. Uh, so that's that's one thing and the other uh, and the other aspect you're alluding to right now is therapist Uh, therapist sort of keeping his own her own their own ego uh, in check in terms of the quality of relationship that is developing in therapy itself is that what you mean very much so there is a little bit of a risk for the therapist ego to inflate in a sense of, oh, I'm doing such a powerful work, then you have to mind the therapeutic boundaries. I think with MDMA-assisted therapy, from what I understand more than any other therapy, the question of therapeutic boundaries is of utmost importance.
1: It is, and let's not be mistaken. We all enter this kind of context with our own baggage. No therapist comes without hopes, wishes, pains, unfulfilled needs and desires, and especially in such a situation with MDMA where the the person in front of you perhaps also kind of feels these things in you and is perhaps interacting with these aspects of you as a therapist. This is really tricky to to keep the balance and, and, and stay close without accidentally or on purpose crossing borders that are necessary Mm -hmm. for a safe and contained experience. And I'm a a strict opponent of this kind of uh, psychedelic exceptionalism, where suddenly because psychedelics or MDMA are involved, rules that are true or that are seen as essential for psychotherapeutic contexts are, are thrown overboard. No uh, physical interactions without a ther- between the therapist and, and and the patient are never okay, and this is not happening in the studies, of course, but in underground MDMA therapy, this is quite an issue, yeah. from what I hear.
0: And there's the there's the issue of use of therapeutic touch, which is obviously touch is a, 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 mod, a sensory modality that ex, is extremely powerful.
1: I think. The way touch is being handled in general psychotherapy these days is toxic. So the notion that a therapist can't even put his hand on a, on a patient's shoulder to kind of give him comfort or something, that everything beyond the handshake is already too much. I don't go for that. But I think that there are clear boundaries. Anything that is erotic or sexual is off limits and of everything in between needs negotiation and especially if this therapeutic tool MDMA is used in people who have experienced abuse sexual physical abuse then this is even more important then touch has the potential to be on one hand massively healing and on the other hand it can destroy everything if this goes wrong and I think um, each side needs to be protected in that. So for example, this modality that, the, like, they, um, it is being practiced in most uh, MDMA and psychedelic therapies of having two therapists, male and female, in the room with the patient is a safety feature for all sides. And it also provides uh, a good yeah, opportunity for projection for male and female energies. It, it, right. it has many perks, but also I think communicating talking about it, and not in the situation, but beforehand. This has to be part of the preparation. It has to be very clearly stated. And I think it is very important that everybody in the room is aware of what the rules are and what they should be.
0: But we also should mention that these issues are being treated very seriously for people who are designing MDMA psychotherapy training like MAPS. Of course. To to Mm -hmm. therapists is very quickly becoming a standard, and I don't think that standard will ever go away, at least during the dosing sessions.
1: I also hope it won't, but the problem is one thing that this therapy has to prove is that it's also not, not only more effective, In the therapeutic effect, but it has to be viable cost wise. Accessible. And and, and if we want to get to the point where health insurances pay for this kind of therapy, they might be asking so, why are we having two professionals in the room with a person for six to eight hours at a time? Because this is investment.
0: There is health insurance and there is liability insurance. (laughs) How much would the liability insurance cost if you have one person only doing this therapy? I don't know. If I were uh, an insurance company, (laughs) that would be a very expensive. But these are all
1: questions for the future. Very important. Yeah, these are these are very important
0: questions. I imagine you guys going to be discussing this at your conference. uh, at Insight. I hope so, yes. Um, touch, let's go back to touch for mm-hmm. uh, just a moment. You say that touch has to be negotiated. First of all, MAPS is very clear in their training that uh, the only people that can use touch kind of are people who are tr- trained in therapeutic touch. So, the you know, people already know what they're doing. Uh, otherwise, for people who are not trained in therapeutic touch, I'm not sure what, you know, what the protocol is, but obviously... You know, do, you know, it's tend towards not not using therapeutic touch. But uh, my question for you is the negotiation of what's comfortable and what's not comfortable. I think this negotiation should happen uh, during the informed consent process before the dosing session. That shouldn't be happening oh, during the dosing session, right?
1: Exactly. I, in the moment when the patient is under the influence of the substance, it's too late to have any kind of informed consent uh, communication great i think but also when you are preparing people for this kind of experience it is massively important to also mention that all sorts of emotions impulses can come up and that sexual impulses impulses of touch just everything from just wanting to be held like a child in his mother's arms to sexual arousal are possible and they're legitimate but again as in so many situations in, in the real life, uh, having a legitimate impulse doesn't constitute the, the, the foundation for acting on this impulse.
0: And it's the responsibility of the therapist to to, Always. to, to mind those Always. boundaries, not the yes. client's responsibility. So this, these are the this is the whole issue around informed in consent. How informed consent should be uh, constructed here for MSS therapy, and what should go into into that?
1: The point is one thing I've always well, I'm always wondering about. Also, now that I, I'm part of the, the study team for the psilocybin depression study in Manhattan, yeah. in Berlin, yeah. and also we have as doctors, as study doctors, got the task to provide informed consent sessions and get the signatures from the patient. And I'm sometimes wondering how do I make somebody consent to something he can't even imagine in his wildest dreams?
0: That's a very good question.
1: (laughs) So is informed consent in fact possible when it comes to those experiences?
0: Uh, Okay, (laughs) let's shut it down then. (laughs) what are you consenting to something you don't know
1: that you can't imagine you can just have a description you and i think it's the task of the doctor or the therapist helping in this to acquire this informed consent to give as precise a description as possible but as every experience is individual as it is extremely extremely difficult and uh, sometimes I, i think that it will, especially as samples get larger, there will also be people coming out at the other end of the experience saying, listen, if I had known what I was signing up for, I wouldn't have done it. It's not, It's not. A, MDMA psychedelics is nothing that makes everybody a happy pony. You know, it's just not true.
0: Right. And with MDMA, from what I understand, the experience, the experience is much more predictable than with psilocybin or LSD or any other psychedelic-assisted therapy. So it's a little, a little easier in terms of guessing what's going to happen. But when you go into psilocybin, like high-dose psilocybin or high-dose LSD, then, then it's really uh, quite unpredictable what's going to happen.
1: I would agree that it's more predictable, but it's still not predictable and it will never be because it will never, what, be. It will never be and however well you we prepare people it will never be predictable it's part, part of of what is actually making the therapy so powerful
0: okay so here's here's another question related to that there's the screening standard there's the exclusionary criteria you know the standards for that the ethics standards and then there's the uh, you know kind of issue of informed consent, and there's the issue of therapy itself. So I'm thinking that the, the best thing for the field would be to come up with a unified exclusionary criteria, standards that will be evolving, of course, screening standards unified for everybody, all the institutes doing the same thing, the same informed consent standards, You know, because there is a lot, these are are very complicated and very important things. But then when you do therapy, I don't know what your thinking is, probably a lot of different kinds of therapies can be used within, or, you know, some modifications, obviously serious modifications, but having one therapy system will not work. All therapists are different. All therapists have different strengths and and, and and all that. What's your thinking about these sort of, the standards that we're developing around MDMA-assisted psychotherapy treatments?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, again, coming from the somatic field, I'm very used to standardizations. I'm very used to guidelines. And I think as this, these therapies evolve, Then need to be consensus guidelines where the leading experts in the field get together and have a long process of crunching the numbers, looking at what has happened, what has gone wrong, what has gone right, what are the real basic rules to all this, and then pour it into a guideline that is actually um, also binding. For everybody who's working with that. On the other side, there's another aspect of sanitization that comes with uh, uh, drug approval. Drug approval, right, uh, right. for example, um, what we see now with uh, Spravato, the esketamine by, by Janssen, they had certain REMS criteria attached to the medication, meaning that, um, for example, the substance was being approved for treatment of treatment-resistant depression, but only if the substance was applied in a clinical setting by a physician who was present. And I think those REMS criteria will also be a major tool when it comes to bringing MDMA and psychedelics into the field of of, uh, psychiatric medicine. On the other hand, this does not prevent people from using it off label you know, off-label use as ketamine is being used off-label to, in Europe to treat to depression is within the decision of the treating physician who also takes a certain responsibility if he uses a medication, a drug, for um, some diagnosis that this drug isn't approved for,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which is will be a vast field. And it will be very interesting to see how seriously people are also going to take the instructions and the legal uh, norms that will have will will be um, c- created in the future. So on the, on the, when it comes to safety, when it comes to application, when it comes to things like what medication should not be given, what drugs should not be given alongside, for example, MDMA, we have to have really, as we in German we say, glass clear, clear as glass. Right, rules it has right. to be very explicit, yes, and um, glass, claw, <laughs> yeah, glass, class is a beautiful word, isn't it? Yeah. So, <laughs> I like it. Um, but when it comes to therapy, we don't know yet what works best and nobody has really checked it out maps mm-hmm. kind of starting it now a bit when they did for example the MDMA
0: uh and a uh, and as an exclusion on...
1: yes but th- 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 I'm more talking about uh the, the therapy modality like oh, okay yes, do we have to base our thinking more in depth psychology what can we use from from uh from uh cognitive behavioral psychotherapy perhaps not the f- classic style but like mm-hmm. third wave ones that are more about mindfulness and acceptance mm-hmm. this kind of thing what's the role of transpersonal psychology apart from a historic one today mm-hmm. so there's a lot to talk about a lot to think about i think some people are going to scream now that i said that but i really believe that this being the the, the, the transpersonal paradigm to a certain extent, is a crutch we have carried over from the 1970s. We really have to establish what we want to use from this thinking and what is today in the 22nd and 21st century, in the second decade of the 21st century, obsolete. And I think we have to right. ask those questions. Right. And we will not know within the next two or three yeah. years. But if substances are approved, yeah. then the next step is... Comparative studies, therapeutic mm-hmm. styles against each other and see what works best.
0: Mm-hmm. I think
1: there are some basic rules, like uh, generalizable concepts on what works in psychotherapy. Mm. And one of the most important ones is always in all those um, clinical research projects, and that relationship between the therapist and the Absolutely. patient. Yeah. And, and this is something, to a certain extent, this is easier working with MDMA, luckily. Yeah. But it, And then it's gonna be the question, okay, what what other concepts we have to apply, what do we have to look into, and will there be something totally different to go with these substances Mm -hmm. in the future, or can we use what already is there? Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, you know, maps, uh, uh, the wonderful maps uh, that has, you know, has spurred all of this, have done all the work to bring it forth. They are not outside of their own tradition, you know, they have their own history and their own tradition of, uh, of certain therapeutic use. So I'm totally... Totally with you on on that and uh, the 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 question of uh, what therapeutic modalities and how to do therapy within uh, w- uh, with MDMA remains an open question, of course. Um, um, for now, we will uh, we will be going with what MAPS is doing because MAPS has uh, proven that they are achieving amazing results. But the future will obviously remain open.
1: And I think even MAPS will go into this kind of trial phase to find out once they have approval if they have to adapt their therapy in one yeah. or the other way i think they're not outside this kind of thing absolutely
0: right? absolutely and maps is such a wonderful organization with as far mm-hmm. as I, I i i can see you know they're really for you know really doing it for public good and they're keeping it real so far so it's amazing you know a related issue is that as far as I can see, there's no money in MDMA, there's no money in psilocybin. So some of the companies that are emerging, what they are trying to do is there is... a lo- The therapy is very expensive. So I think some of the companies, uh, either they are doing or they will be trying to uh, claim a specific therapeutic modality that works and show do a little bit of research and show this is the therapeutic modality that works with this, uh, with MDMA, and maybe get a little bit of a little bit of monopoly that way. I think there's a little bit of risk that way, don't you think?
1: I have to say, I don't think that this is the main issue, but there, there are patents now on psychedelics. There is a patent on uh, the compound 360 that Compass came up again, which is basically uh, ps- psilocybin with a twist. Um, and there's also so money in producing and, and s- selling MDMA at a certain point. I don't think it will be that cheap because um, the the IP, the intellectual property, also protects the production for quite a while when, when uh, the substance has come okay. to market. Um, I think it's two different groups of companies and organizations. There are psychedelic drug producers that will be trying to create their revenue through the substances and there are other groups that are more about trying to protect certain, as you say, therapeutic modalities. But that's, from what I I see, this hasn't developed that much yet. And what I see is that there's quite a few trainings coming up. There's many different organizations coming up with psychedelic training. There will be um, many different options to choose from. And there will be trainings that are firmly based in in indigenous traditions, there will be trainings that are based around transpersonal ideas, there will be trainings like, like ours that are more into into uh, general evidence-based psychotherapeutic aspects and more the science side. And this is a good development in my opinion, it's a diversification of what therapists and doctors uh, get to choose from where to learn, what where to to benefit from and this is actually a positive thing uh, there is a commercialization in the field that is astonishing and a bit scary so i when, when i remember like, like a decade ago money wasn't a thing it was yeah. uh, well, it was beginning to be a thing but not quite there was n- no big money to be made or no big big careers to be made in the psychedelic field except from, except from uh, except from some scientists but we are in a different place now and money has been pumped into this whole field and there is definitely a psychedelic bubble, as there was a cannabis bubble before. And let's hope that we can save the, the good, the important and the viable parts mm-hmm. when this bubble bursts.
0: And what do you think people are betting on?
1: I think we have to be aware that what people are putting their money on is hope. Mm. The ones who would be benefiting if psychedelic therapy is MDMA, psilocybin, perhaps LSD, others... Mm where accessible are people who are pretty desperate, Mm. who've tried all sorts of other treatments, who've done medication, done therapy, done mindfulness techniques, and nothing really worked. And suddenly there's hope. Working with this hope, like creating also a financial development around this hope, will they be the ones cashing in on this promise? Or will it be others who will be stepping up, trying to keep true to that that idea that this is beneficial for people.
0: That's a wonderful uh, angle, Andrea, hope. Is this hope justified in your mind?
1: My first impulse just now was hope is always justified because it's what keeps us going as humanity. I think we would not be where we are if this intrinsic capacity to hope wasn't with us. but. What do we hope for and will we also be able to cope if things do get better but we don't get all we hope for? There will be disenchantment. There will be people who don't benefit in the way they hope for. There might be some who don't benefit at all. There might be social pressure on people to try the therapy even though they don't feel ready. Because not they were the ones hoping but for example their relatives. And I think there's with hope. if you. You know, if you, you kindle those flames of hope, you have to be very responsible uh, responsible with what you're doing because people people who lose hope possibly have lost the thing that kept them alive, especially with trauma, with depression, with addiction. So whenever you use hope as a tool to mean, to, to, uh, as, as a, something to get certain means, you should be aware that the collateral damage can be huge if you're not careful.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. I'm just thinking about therapy, you know, uh, I'm, a ther- I'm a psychotherapist, right? So that's my main, that's my day job. Been doing it for a while. So anytime uh, clients ask me if I can help them, you know, my answer is always that, uh, i can't promise anything i all i can promise is that i will be here with them and i'll do my best to help them you know and that's Mm -hmm. that's my way of dealing with that particular uh, issue where you say the inflation of hope might be very dangerous and do you think there is an over inflation of hope then with uh, with uh, mdma assisted psychotherapy
1: I would not want to narrow that in on MDMA. But if I look at the whole field of substance assisted psychotherapy, be it MDMA or psychedelics or ketamine, I think we have to be a bit more careful because people are not used to difficult answers. People want an easy yes or an easy no. Mm -hmm. And everything that comes with a yes, but or no, but people stop listening Mm -hmm. after the comma. And it's very important that we learn as as people working in this field to try to be very precise and very explicit in also pointing out the dark sides, the difficulties and the possible letdowns that can happen. Somebody who goes also into therapy with MDMA and opens his traumatic memory experiences might benefit greatly from this experience. But if this goes wrong, they might be really raw with those feelings and the containment they had before, that they had achieved by bottling it down, applying pressure on the, the pressure cooker. This might not be possible anymore. As there is no drug without side effects, there is also no therapy without possible side effects. And we have to be aware that trying to make people better, we always run some risk of making them worse if that's not the case what we're doing is homeopathy and we may as well not do it
0: you know (laughs) and we should we should probably mention that uh, obviously psychotherapy itself uh, is only one aspect of of making people's lives better we have to make our world better so that's another question that i have for you if it's true that there's an epidemic of loneliness what happens if in MDMA assisted therapy, the client in fact has a wonderful healing experience, connects wonderfully with the therapists, and then goes back to to their lives. And there is that doesn't have sufficient connections there, doesn't have the relationships. How does this play into even like accepting people into therapy uh, if in certain circumstances? Well,
1: I think this is a very important point. And what you're mentioning is, in my understanding, the the, the, the key issue. If you have a patient who you take out of a, let's use a buzzword, out of a toxic environment, and then you treat him and he's better and he... Go, goes back into the toxic environment yeah. you know if you've got a fish tank full of algae you can take your koi out and pamper it once you put it back into the For fish itself. tank it's back with the algae and it's it's this this is something where you have to be aware on what you're doing are you trying to get somebody back to being ad- adaptive to his toxic surroundings or are you empowering somebody to change his mm-hmm. surroundings but changing Life circumstances, changing life situations, may come with a cost, and also it has to be very clear if the patient is willing to pay that price. You know, there's this this love, again great great joke. I don't know if you know it. Um, how many therapists do you need to change a light bulb? Oh no, only one. But the light bulb has to want to change. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's great. So what what about the uh, related issue of of developing? Um... A very strong attachment to your treating therapist and then being let loose in, into the world that might not have those kind of quality attachments.
1: Again, if it is being made explicit beforehand in the process of acquiring informed consent, that this model relationship, this try out procure for a relationship you're establishing with your therapist. this is always the case this always happens in good therapeutic relationships you have um like you get a trial version of what a healthy human relationship would look like if you had one with your therapist and but this is not special to mdma therapy this is something that is
0: but it might be stronger in mdma therapy and quicker very
1: much so and quicker I think it has to be addressed, and I think it puts the burden of carefully choosing patients on the therapist. You should not be taking people into this closeness to yourself who are, by this closeness, losing the capacity to hold themselves in their original surrounding. And um, it's, it's sometimes it could even be unfair to show somebody what this could be like and then there is, for some reason, no way this can be achieved in real life. But on the other hand, where does the therapeutic responsibility start? and Where does it stop? That's a huge question. The patient doesn't lose his self-responsibility. But on the other hand, if somebody is very sick, especially with psychiatric conditions like a PTSD or, or depression, how self-responsible can they behold still? Right. Health,
0: not hold, (laughs) health. For see, uh, so many issues here that we're talking about goes into the the, under the rubric of informed consent. Mm
1: -hmm. It's the basis for the rest of the therapeutic relationship.
0: What do you think about the issue of access? And uh, initially, at least, without government uh, or insurance uh, coverage, this will be a fairly expensive therapy with. uh, dosing sessions being as long as maybe eight hours with two therapists and a prescribing doctor.
1: This is a very difficult situation because the ones who possibly would be needing this kind of treatment most are the ones who are not financially affluent because they also impairment to go out in the world and, and earn money and so on and so on is part of,
0: of their trauma of
1: yeah. of trauma of the problem somebody who's mm-hmm. extremely depressed is not going to go out work eight hour shift somebody with a deep trauma won't be able to do that so these people are in a difficult situation in a pinch anyway here in germany we are in kind of a fortunate situation because in our health system uh, we have um very, very good general access to the public health insurance. You really have to try hard not to be insured in Germany. And um, here, psychotherapy is on the public health insurance. So even if people don't get access to these new, state-of-the-art, top-notch therapies like psychedelics or MDMA, they will still be having access at least to medication and standard psychotherapy, talking psychotherapy, on their public health insurance. I think in in countries like the U.S. where this is a different issue, where people might, especially if they're very sick, go without any insurance, this is a, a harsher issue. I think there's a lot of lobby work to do because these people don't, or very often, don't have the power to stand up and fight for themselves. So it's our responsibility as society to see them in their needs and make these things accessible to them. In, in Germany at the moment, the, the substance we can work with in psychedelic psychotherapy in the broad sense is ketamine as an atypical psychedelic. So that's what I do, in or what we do in, with a team in our practice, a mixed team of psychiatrists, anesthesiologists and psychotherapists. This treatment is covered by some private insurances. But not by many. Some cover it fully, some cover parts. The public health insurance would only cover the cost of the ketamine infusions, not the surrounding psychotherapy in some cases, but very rarely on a case-to-case decision. There is a, a substantial number of patients who either fork up the money themselves, pay the treatment, which is not overly expensive. We, we don't charge more than regular psychotherapy in the private sector. That is cheaper, by the way, like for example, in, in the US, it's much cheaper here in Germany. And uh, the application of the substance would cost. But what we do here is we always have um, the, the invitation to people to also apply for pro bono slot. Of course we can't do all pro bono work, this is not how the world works unfortunately, but there is a constant number of pro bono patients we accept who only pay the first examination to get into the treatment and after that it is in, in some cases completely for free, in other cases they pay what they can pay. But this is like our our share of trying to make this more, more accessible. And um, it's great to see how, especially patients who were severely depressed for 20 years and therefore not able to fend for themselves in the workplace and didn't have the money for the therapy, got on a pro bono uh, slot and really benefited from the treatment and were walking out, yeah, with straight a straighter back, a smile on their face and perhaps the chance to start something new with this little push we were able to give them mm. and but on the other hand it, it can't be it can't become the rule that the response the moral responsibility for providing treatment is on the treatment providers so it can't can't be institutes like clinics hospitals institutions like maps to, to be providing treatment for free This is a problem the whole society has to face and we have Mm -hmm. to come to terms with this notion and Mm -hmm. hopefully in the future we will have better modalities of assigning therapies to those people who really need it Mm -hmm. whatever their financial situation is
0: Mm -hmm. another question for you is about uh, relationships mdma therapy has a, a great potential for healing relationships improving relationships uh, within the psychiatric system, uh, right now the diagnoses are always individual. Let's just assume that the research will show that, yeah, it's powerful for treating relationships. How is it possible technically that that people can be covered in the future for relationship treatment for MDMA-assisted therapy?
1: Well, there is the paradigm around systemic psychotherapy that takes the whole or the the social group of a person into account that says usually somebody who develops um, a mental illness is like the the index patient for a whole system for example for a family or for a group of people and with this kind of thinking in the background it could be argument uh, you could make the argument that it makes sense to treat the whole system, and then suddenly, perhaps there could be couples therapy, there could be family therapy. Not obviously, obviously not with minors to explicitly say that, but like with like grown kids and parents, for example, or, or spouses and siblings to to work together. The question is, will this ever be on the health insurance? And I can't answer this because
0: yeah, yeah. It, it's
1: far off, and to a certain extent. It would be wonderful if it was in the future, but looking at the situation now, especially with the massive costs that has come into all health systems due to Corona, for example, the, 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 the lack of other treatments that were available for very like practical things like hip replacements and so on and so on because of Corona, is, it might be even less probable in those times where the, it would be needed even more to treat relational difficulties because i think this has been a huge topic also isolation due to corona has been a huge huge issue in the world Uh, so many people sitting in their single one room flats not getting a chance to to speak to a human being and developing very intense relationship with, with their potted plants perhaps these things will become more Known and clearer to larger groups of people who are in charge of who are making decisions like for health insurances and so on, so on in the future. But we're not there yet, it might take mm-hmm. some time. And the usual process is that somebody gets convinced who's got a, a, a large influence on other people, and then the domino stones start falling. And we're still waiting for the domino moment mm-hmm. when it comes to implementing right. these therapies,
0: right. I don't know if you know about uh, a small study that was done here in Canada, Anne Wagner and, and some other people. on uh, They used the cognitive behavioral co- conjoint therapy protocol uh, to treat PTSD. Uh, and one, Wagner one, and Candice
1: Monson, yes. Mm-hmm.
0: Right, and Candace Monson, uh, and one part, one person had uh, PTSD, and and but they treated both uh, partners within the couple with MDMA-assisted therapy, and, and they had some really nice initial results, and they are setting up a another study. Well, interesting,
1: interestingly enough, something rather similar. My now husband Hendrik and I actually wrote a proposal for a study that was around and. And uh, tachygenic substance, dot MDMA, but SMDE, that was at the time a little less critical in Germany. And we had a, a protocol where we would have treated couples where one partner would have been seriously ill, terminally ill, but the others not, but give MDMA to both. And uh, unfortunately, we could not make this happen at the time. In, two, in the year 2008, Germany was just not in. Any... Not ready yet. No, not ready yet. Perhaps this would be something we, we could look into in the future again. I think mm-hmm. there's a lot of yeah gold to be found when we look especially into couples' relationships with MDMA. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. It's an interesting system we have because even this, you still have to have a kind of sick... You know, sick person, one person with with trauma, t- and then even if it's allowed for two people and it's approved for two people, it's still one person. So it still doesn't address the issue of of, of more of of a, of a growth issue. Like when the couples are, uh, they love each other, but they're just not doing so great. You know, this is this seems like a really good situation for that kind of therapy. MDMA uh, is known to open communication. In the way that nothing does uh, as far as i as far as i understand so these these communication sessions between couples can be extremely powerful extremely bonding and afterwards the integration part of the of this session afterwards creates a a lasting from you know again from from Mm -hmm. all i know and all i i read uh lasting effect so that's it's a really uh This is an area that has a great, great potential in certain couple situations. You don't want to do it for couples that are ready to divorce. But
1: even to support a a good divorce, it might be. Even to
0: support it? Yeah, maybe, maybe.
1: Well, I was just thinking, yes, I, I fully agree with you. There is great potential for this. But again, if we look at the two reasons why different groups of people want to use a substance, it's treating severe illness or enhancing already quite bearable life situations. And if I have, if I personally, if I have to choose about which one to tackle first, a, it, I think those people who are either in, in a very difficult situation due to trauma or to depression or the like, deserve to go first before couples being happier. But I also think that using these substances to treat people who are really in difficult situations mentally, is the only way of gaining societal acceptance. And from right. there, we can yep. take it. It's, there are many people who don't need to be convinced doesn't mean that lawmakers and the general public. Right.
0: Brig Doblin is very clear about strategically uh, targeting PTSD. Is Not only that these are the people that actually need help the most, but also strategically, it's the, the best the best move. And, and what So what is your Institute's thinking on, or your Foundation's thinking on personal growth?
1: What we are working on is establishing what the German term would be Bewusstseinskultur, a culture of consciousness. And that does not necessarily involve psychoactive or illegal substances. Uh, you, you can cultivate beneficial states of consciousness through meditation, through positive interactions through trance techniques and so on and so on there's a lot there still to be found and in in along those lines there is also the use of psychoactive substances, psychedelics MDMA for self-development but we consciously decided not to to explicitly lobby this at the time being because we are involved in the development of of medical treatments. What we want at the moment is mainly bringing psychedelic therapy, psychedelic medicine into the field and then take it from there. It doesn't make sense to rush these things. As nice as it would be to have centers of self-development where people could go to have psychedelic or MDMA experiences as quick as possible, I think in most parts of the world, apart from very few exceptions, like partially um, uh, the, the Netherlands with their cyber uh, travels, it, we're not ready yet. And this might go quicker than we think, but we're not there yet. And mm-hmm. what, 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 this this old thing, um, this, this Aikido thing, you know, move where you can move. Don't try to move against... A block but try to move where you can and we can establish more beneficial ways of dealing with consciousness we can start to establish psychotic therapies for people with severe diagnosis and take it from there and whenever you try to push very hard the risk of creating a counter movement a backlash get stronger and this happened already in the 60s and 70s we don't need a second edition of this let's take it slower yes people will will get there but it does doesn't make sense to to force it right now
0: are you hopeful that this is going to to, to get bigger or are you are you pessimistic about wh- where we're going as humanity and as uh, life on earth
1: there are very few pessimistic emergency doctors. As a pessimist, it's the last profession sh- you should choose. So I am an optimist by definition.
0: <laughs> and That's great. Emo- uh, emotionally, you're an optimist and uh, intellectually, you're an optimist as well.
1: This is a really big question, you know, and it's very difficult to answer. Um, I think being cautiously optimistic is something we can allow ourselves, being naively convinced that suddenly psychedelics will open our channel to the next dimension and we will turn everything around just on the basis of that is, in my opinion, between naive and delusional, to be very honest. Mm -hmm. I know this sounds Mm -hmm. a bit harsh, but I think if we make good use of these resources, these are. I see psychedelics not as religious entities or as truth bringers, I see them as tools for development, as tools that we can learn to use. and. If people learn to use them wisely, they don't only serve themselves, but everybody around them. There will never be a day where everybody will be able to, or should even have an experience like that and benefit, because some people just won't. There's, there's, There's nothing that is good for everybody. That's just the way it is. I am hopeful in the sense that we already have gotten to where we are now. I mean, we're talking between uh, somebody with a german background sitting in berlin and somebody with a polish background sitting in canada you know
0: from stettin just yeah, 200 St- kilometers from you, that's where I, where I grew up yeah
1: and if you think and if you think about the time 75 years ago when, when 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 germany was invading usually aggressive and so on and so on we've come a long way from then and i do have some hope for humanity But I also believe that it's never been easy and it's not getting easier because we've come to a point also with the climate change and so on and so on, where we can't afford to make many more mistakes. If there's one thing human beings are good at, it's making mistakes, unfortunately. (laughs) So um, I think it's going to be a challenge. And I don't know if we will be able to turn things around. But I do think that the insights around emotional healing, around connectedness can be very supportive, but they won't be a remedy to save the world. They can be supportive and I hope that more people will make use of these tools in this sense. And we we can only, all of us can only change the situation exactly where we are and work on things. Many, many people do small things that also amounts to a large thing being done in the world. And I think this is Mm -hmm. perhaps an an awareness we have to create amongst each other.
0: You've been uh, making a number of statements that are good public messaging. But if you were to summarize a couple of points that, in your opinion, are the most important public messaging that the field of psychedelic assisted psychotherapy should be broadcasting right now to the public? What would be some of the most important points you would make?
1: So to the general public, not the people who are like interested anyway, perhaps my most important message would be, let's give this a try, let's look into the potential of those substances without getting overexcited and without naively thinking that this will solve all problems, save all all people and the whole planet, but see it as an option for growth, for healing, and as a chance to use very wisely. And let's explore this together. And the good thing is, because the experiences are so individual, they will not never be a leading expert, a Usain Bolt, like the quickest runner on psychedelics. There is a lot to learn, and the individual can yeah, learn and develop for himself in, in this field. And that's extend an invitation without being overly pushy and without promising too much. We don't have to lure people into the, the realm of psychedelics. They can speak for themselves. And let's have an open but critical stance towards the substances, towards ourselves, our intentions, our wishes, our hopes, and provide solid treatment and good opportunities for those people turning in the search for, for meaning and for answers, may it be healing or personal development.
0: That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Let me just play a devil's advocate just for a moment. It's not me, it's the devil's advocate saying, Hey Andre, I know you have to be a you have to be balanced, you're a doctor. But hey, this study, MDMA psychotherapy study that was just released, the biggest study ever. The effect sizes for other therapeutic modalities for PTSD, the, the, the large effect size is like 0. 0.8, 0. 0.8, and here you have a study coming up with 2.1 effect size. It's astronomical. How could people not get excited about that?
1: I think people have every right to get excited about it, but we still should be aware that even if we talk about the largest, sample for now. We're still talking a few hundred people. We're not talking thousands, right. 10,000, millions. And we're talking one diagnosis. We're talking PTSD. We don't really know what it's going to do for other psychiatric illnesses, problems, difficulties. I don't want to, to
0: belittle this at all. This is beautiful. You don't want to dampen the excitement, but you, you want to take your time
1: and one thing, one problem or one fallacy we should not go for at all is extrapolating from scientific studies to general use in the general public. Just because some carefully selected patients benefited very much in this study doesn't mean mm. everybody going to a dealer getting some molly will heal his trauma this evening in the club. This is just not true. And this is also irresponsible communication, if we don't, as professionals, always point this out. Hey, this is great treatment if we carefully curate the sample of patients, carefully choose who's being treated, carefully train the people applying it, because this will be the next loophole, the next uh, bottleneck on how to train enough people really to that standard that MAPS is training their people to. These people, those therapists have been selected along very strict criteria. But if this is rolled out, if suddenly there's thousands of people just taking an online course, and then how do you guarantee that there aren't people who are going to harm other people?
0: Absolutely. And it's all to be seen. I'm completely with you on on this cautionary train, for sure. There is a good promise right now. Let's see uh, what's going to happen in real life when those therapies are applied outside of uh, the studies, when they are applied uh, by many different therapists in different places, in different contexts. So absolutely Andrea uh, before we finish do you have a moment to tell us about a little bit more about the mind foundation about your programs that people mm-hmm. can uh, can get from you I, I my feeling is you you guys have a very high quality programs like the drug education program mm-hmm.
1: right so the mind foundation is a nonprofit organization that was founded almost five years ago um, We are based in Berlin, we have a team of around 20 people working here with us and also uh, always some very talented and very gifted interns working with us on different programs. We are currently focusing in on three aspects. One is that we have developed um, Beyond Experience and some other integration processes, integration programs that try to provide structured psychotic integration Uh, For example, Beyond Experience is a five-day course that works a lot with getting in and out of all states of consciousness but without using pharmacological tools. So we're talking breath, we're talking dance, we're talking imagination, we're talking artistic experience and so on and so on. And people learn to be more apt, adapted in moving in and out of those those states and learn, okay, what is beneficial to me, where do I avoid what are the tools i can use to integrate better in the future
0: and beyond experience by the way you have a, a program in which people can participate but then after participating in that program you also have a, a facilitator training for beyond experience that people can take from you and they and then they can use that uh, in other parts of the world if they wish
1: where well, they, we train facilitators, but they stay kind of attached to us. So, one, on one hand, to do quality management and also to kind of keep the program evolving. So, we have a group of facilitators that we train. We will offer another training next year. We've just trained 11 people and we're, we're aiming to do two trainings next year. The idea is that that people come learn and then take what they've learned and do this completely uh, indi- uh, individually or. Um, out of connection with our work but we we train people to become facilitators of beyond experience within the MIND Foundation the other thing we offer that you mentioned is the so-called now called molecules program which used to be called drug science program which is an online course pre-recorded on a very very high level it will be CECME certified and what we try to do is teach all those things that you usually don't learn when I was training in in medicine in, in Germany there was nothing about psychedelics neither the pharmacology nor the um, modes of action or the uh, yeah, phenomenology nor how to treat uh, difficult situations or accidents in, in my training and we're not only doing this for for, for psychedelics but for psych, uh, active substance in general and it's a very extensive program where lots of people put lots of energy and interest into and it's going to be um, on, on the internet. F- to to be booked um, at the end of September, the complete program. We have the first modules online already. And the biggest thing, our uh, big pride currently is the so-called APT program, augmented psychotherapy program. We consciously don't call it psychedelic therapy because we are more focused on the psych, uh, on the psychotherapy aspect of that. So it's psychotherapy plus, and then it can be psychotherapy plus breathing techniques uh, like breathwork. It can be mm. uh, things like like bodywork, but it's also um, ketamine. We're working with ketamine uh, in the training, also for self-experience, and uh, also classic psychedelics and MDMA. We have uh, a great uh, group of facilitators, also mentors, from all over the world that come and help and join us and we've got uh, lecturers from the most renowned research organizations coming in to to give lectures with the team. It's going to be a two-year training. The first group is almost full. We're starting in November with the first group and this is going to be in English. The next one in spring is going to be in German. We're also recruiting for that already. And in this two-year program, it's going to be on-site modules of five days. It's going to be uh, participation also in beyond in experience, the course we already mentioned, because knowing about your own patterns is very important when you want to work with other people. Uh, we have a cooperation um, with uh, Heather Hargraves and Jeff Tarrant, you might know, for neuro meditation. So there will be a continuous meditation program because we really see, think therapists need their own process before going into processes with people. And uh, it's going to be online coursework as well, uh, intervision groups, reading groups, and so on and so on. And um, yeah, it's it's a very uh, well curated program. Well, it's one of my babies, so uh, of course right. I say that. But if you look it up on the internet, on our website mindminusfoundation.org, you will find everything about it. Um, I think it's the most evidence and science based training program in the psychedelic field at the moment.
0: Excellent, excellent. So, uh, augmented psychotherapy mm-hmm. training program. Then earlier you uh, spoke about uh, about beyond experience, and you also spoke about uh, the drug science program, which is which you, you can take. Anybody can take online. How many hours is that course?
1: The so-called molecules. Program the drug sound wrong. It's it's uh it's forty um, sessions of forty-five minutes minutes each, but you can also uh, come in and book uh, blocks of eight sessions. At a time, so you don't okay. have the whole the whole package looming in the background of your computer.
0: Okay, wonderful. And of course, Inside Conference is coming up right away. So if uh, if somebody is interested, it's probably likely going to be an, an amazing, amazing conference. I. Uh,
1: I'm just going to say, if anybody wants to get a ticket for for Inside an online ticket, the the. Um, uh, url is inside-conference.eu you'd be very welcome it's going to be i think a treat for everybody attending and we look forward to it and yeah would be great, great to see a few of your uh, your audience there too
0: that would be great that's awesome anything else you would like to add before we disconnect for today andrea
1: I think we had a very broad and very lovely conversation covering all bases from uh, psychopharmacology to the general questions of what keeps the world spinning. So thank you very much for the conversation. thank,
0: Thank you very much for your time, especially during this very, very busy period.
1: Of course, it was a pleasure.